I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in our 2021 vision series, A Narrow View of the Whole World. Having established the groundwork, it's time to talk through each dimension of what will become your rule of life. Uh, in 1989, novelist Catherine Dunn, who lived in Oregon, published her magnum opus, a novel called Geek Love, about a traveling circus freak show created via experimental drugs. It is one of my top five favorite novels of all time. I've read it several times. It's the kind of deliciously twisted storytelling that makes me want to forfeit my own writing and say, okay, Miss Dunn, you win novels. I quit. Catherine Dunn is so known for her her beloved geek love novel that it often surprises new readers exploring her bibliography that Dunn was also not just a novelist, but of all things, a prolific boxing journalist. And it surprises readers because here's this woman. She doesn't look like she would be into boxing. She traveled in literary circles. She won awards in the publishing industry for her creative writing. And she dedicated so much of her creative energy to writing about boxing. Dunn frequented boxing gyms around the country. She traveled to fights. She spent time with fighters and wrote profiles. She wrote extensively about all those things. In fact, some of her work on the subject, not all of it because there's so much, but some of it was compiled into a 2009 book called One Ring Circus. It's a fascinating read. And in it, Dunn reveals that the source of her profound love for what is often described as the sweet science of boxing was the discriminating code by which fighters must live. See, in most cases, young men find boxing as a safe house from their otherwise dangerous and crime-ridden environments, or they do it to escape poverty or to confront trauma. But boxing isn't a safe or easy escape hatch from those things. The discipline and self-sacrifice necessary are so alienating that many, if not most, of the young men that Catherine Dunn witnessed cross the threshold of boxing gyms and asked to be trained, among those, very, very few went on to actually embrace the way of life, the code, the discipline and self-denial by which the fighter must live. Dunn had witnessed that rare event, and she wrote that it never ceased to amaze and inspire her, the idea that someone might actually live by a code, the romanticism of such a thing inspires nearly all of us, I would argue. In fact, it doesn't always matter what the code is. It's the abstracted thing itself that there are people who will not be mastered by anything, but who somehow possess the incredible will to move upstream against the chaos of life happening to them, to leave the flimsy lifestyle of self-indulgence and compromise behind, to conjure the means necessary to say, these are the things I will and will not do because there is a person that I want to become. One more time, as we bring our annual vision series to an end, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We began this series with what I would argue is the secret to all of this. Not long before Jesus' death, a death of which Jesus was aware and for which he was prepared, Jesus left his disciples with a beautiful and profound metaphor for what it means to truly be his disciples. 
And it's in a teaching in John chapter 15, beginning with the very first verse. Are you guys all right? Even in spite of the lack of slides and everything, you okay? Great. Thank you, Lexi. Super ready up here. I'm counting on you. Um, Let's read from the Scriptures. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the reading of the Bible? John 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. This is not the first time we've read this passage together, and it will not be the last. Something we've argued dozens of times in our journey through spiritual formation is that none of these practices that we've engaged as a church, none of these spiritual disciplines are ends unto themselves, meaning the point of, say, fasting is not the fasting itself. The point of even something like Scripture reading isn't just Scripture reading. The point is God. The practices are all a means to an end, and the end is God, life with God, and how life with God changes us into people of love. Jesus taught His disciples the secret to spiritual formation, remain in me or abide in the vine. Stay connected to Jesus by His Spirit. This is why theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard argued that the first and most basic thing that we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. By God's Spirit alive in us, we can now, today, even though He's not physically here, we can still be with Jesus, always fulfilling the promise He made to His disciples then and now, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to practice the lifestyle of Jesus, we can experience the freedom of Jesus, the things that He promised, life to the fullest, intimacy with God as we are shaped into the people God designed us to be. And most of us, I would wager, would very much like to become the person God has designed us to be. Maybe we don't know how to say that, or maybe we don't know how it works, but that is what we want. We want a code. The idea that one can understand and implement a vision and mission for their lives and to draw from both of these things guiding practices by which they order their days and weeks and months and years, most of us find such a thing at least interesting, if not deeply admirable, and we want that 
for ourselves. We want purpose and vision and conviction. Really, for those of us who follow Jesus, many if not most of us feel as if this is the thing missing from our discipleship, a code, integrity, discipline. And it's not just that it's missing, it's that we miss it. We're actually aware of its absence a lot of the time because we want it. We want something to be different. We want our lives to be organized and meaningful and imbued with purpose. And what's worse, we usually know what's in the way and we just feel like we're helpless against it. You read about Jesus constantly going away to pray, spending entire nights in prayer. You read about Jesus' deep familiarity with the Scriptures. You read about the way that He fasted, the way that He did silence and solitude. You read about the way that Jesus participated in community with other people, the way He showed up to synagogue faithfully. And exactly zero readers say, man, Jesus seems lazy. No one reads the Gospels and concludes, Jesus seems aimless. His life seems overstuffed with things that are peripheral to his calling. No one says, Jesus seems chaotic and purposeless. No one thinks, Jesus just can't seem to figure out what to do with himself and his time and his life. Jesus seems stressed, says no one reading the Gospels. But we often feel as if our lives are all of those things, chaotic, overstuffed, aimless, stressed. Jesus is assured. His vocation is determined. His purpose is settled. He works really hard, and He rests really well. He's dedicated and disciplined, but then He also parties and has fun and enjoys life. He gets into all kinds of trouble as a result of honoring His own conviction without compromise, and yet He's somehow still free from anxiety, free from addiction, free from lust or materialism or greed, and we think, what the heck? And hilariously, the answer to the conundrum is right there in the story. In fact, you have to read the answer while you're reading the question. So you think, huh, Jesus sure is deliberate about the spiritual rhythms of his life. He's always praying a certain way, fasting a certain way, doing community and rest and work a certain way. Man, I wonder how he was so focused and so connected to the Father and so free from anxiety and fear. The strangest guy, this Jesus. And when we connect these two obvious things, most of us, if we're honest, know what's keeping us from them. We look at, out at what seems like a marathon full of hurdles and pitfalls and brick walls and moats overflowing with hungry alligators, and we think, yes, I do want to be like Jesus, not just disciplined, but I want to be unhurried and unanxious. Yes, but I also want to look at my phone. Or we think, you know, man, I want more intimacy with God. I, I do want that. But I'm tired. <laughs> I want to sleep in. It's hard, you know. I want to be more satisfied and more at peace, even in the chaos and suffering of my life. But I want to watch a show. I want to watch all of the show. Or whatever your thing is. And this isn't a new problem. It's easy to pick on modern things. And even though the early church didn't have smartphones and Netflix, there have always been distractions and corruptions in the world that draw disciples of Jesus away from the practices and the presence of Jesus like some kind of awful gravity. And so the early church proposed a means of fighting back 
against the soul-draining rhythms of the world that wall us in and impose their will over us. And they did this by deliberately swimming against the current, crafting deliberate counter-rhythms that defy and undo the patterns of aimlessness and anxiety and laziness and sin. And they called it a rule of life. For the, fa- for the past few weeks, we have been in a series and set of practices designed to prepare us for developing our own rules of life. And a rule of life is, in my personal experience, the best way to organize and implement the practices of Jesus into your unique life, personality, calling, season, stage of apprenticeship. And the idea is not to give you more work. The idea is not to give you yet another thing to do. The idea is not to confine you or restrict you. The idea is that we would have more freedom. The idea is to look at your own personality, your own season of life, the person that Jesus has asked you to be, and to establish for yourself adaptable rhythms that will enable and empower you to live and thrive as a disciple of Jesus and that will evolve with you as you grow and change and your life does the same. A rule of life is the code many of us wish that we had, the integrity and discipline that we've seen in other people and things but often feel as missing from our own lives. And the thing is, all of us live by certain rhythms and routines already, good or bad, organized or chaotic. We all have rhythms and routines that make up the greater part of our everyday lives. A rule of life is a means by which we examine those rhythms and routines and we dispense with the unhealthy organize the things that enable us to thrive as disciples of Jesus. So, the plan for the evening is to walk through the seven categories of what will become, if you choose to make one, your own rule of life. And then, as you meet in your communities to work this out, you will go on to write your own rule of life. Now, a bit of a warning, uh, tonight is more like kind of a lecture than our typical Bible teachings, but I'm convinced that there's something here of tremendous value for enabling us to actually put the teachings of Jesus into practice if we let it. This is a time-tested practice from centuries of church history. And there's never been one set template for a rule of life, but the categories have, for the most part, been pretty consistent. They are as follows. Abiding, I'll explain these all in a second, the mind, the body, relationships and sexuality, work and rest, money, and gospel and hospitality. Now, each of those categories translates into practices, and each of those practices you organize by rhythms, as in daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and or annually. Now, I want to walk you through each category briefly. I'll use my own rule of life to sort of illustrate some of the possibilities. Now, of course, I am in no way saying that you need to emulate my rule of life, not at all. That would defeat the purpose entirely. But you can use it to kind of make your own ideas, get inspiration, steal anything you like if it works, or just kind of wrap your mind around what a rule might look like. Does that make sense? Great, thank you. So, the whole thing starts with abiding, the word that comes from that teaching from John 15, abide in the vine or remain in me. Um, These are the direct and deliberate practices of abiding in the vine, as Jesus called it, remaining connected to Him. They include everything from morning prayer, scripture reading, worship, 
There's something called the daily office, which is a recurring time in the day that you recenter with prayer. There's um, something called the examine, which is a prayer practice we've been through that where you kind of reframe the day's events with God, things like Sabbath or fasting, silence and solitude, all the things that help you connect with Jesus. My current rule is I do morning prayer and scripture every single day. Um, five days of the week, I wake up really early so that I can have an extended period of time, which will not be uh, interrupted by three small children. Um, and I pray. I do contemplation, or I practice the presence of God, or I do intercession, praying for people and things, or I do imaginative prayer. I do a mix of all those things. Uh, I read through the scriptures. I pray through a few liturgies, and I talk to God and sit in His presence for an hour or so. On the two days of the week that I don't wake up so early, um, my two days off, I, I, my house is usually a little bit noisier. I still get up in the morning with my family, and then I sit on the couch with coffee and spend some time reading the Bible and praying, even if you know it's interrupted by holding a baby or little kids or yelling at me or whatever it might be. Because it's important to me not only that I have that time every day, even if it's not always an hour of totally quiet, uninterrupted time, it's also important to me that my kids grow up recognizing that as a part of my daily rhythm. Um, and right now it's annoying to them, but one day they'll appreciate it, you know. <laughs> And then later on in the day, my watch beeps uh, at 2 p.m. every single day to remind me of the daily office. I stop what I'm doing. I pray, recenter for a few moments. Sometimes it's literally 10 seconds. Sometimes it's, you know, an extended period of time, 10, 15 minutes. But I do that every day. And then there are other practices that enable me to practice abiding. I have community every week. We pray together at community. We walk through the practices together and talk about Jesus I'm at the Sunday gathering every week where prayer and listening and reflection and worship, they're all part of our regular rhythm together as a church. Um, every month I spend one day fasting, and every year I spend a day in silence and solitude. Now, of all those things that I just listed, you'll probably notice that a lot of you are already doing some of or several of those things from that list. If you're in a community, for example, if you're here on Sunday, for example, you already have a certain established rhythm every single week where you have occasions to pray and abide. So the idea is you just take those things and build from there, organize and build. If you're just getting started with a rule of life, our recommendation for kind of a baseline practice in this category is to simply commit to a daily quiet time of prayer and Bible reading, even if it's super brief and simple. Start with 10 minutes in the morning. Every single person can do 10 minutes a day to pray and read from the Scriptures. And on top of that, to commit to participate in a community and come to church on Sunday. All of that fits within the abiding category, and it's a wonderful place to start. The next category is the mind. This has to do with the kinds of habits that occupy your mental real estate and shape what we believe and the things that we do, because the things to which we give our attention ultimately shape the person we become. So you just have to ask yourself, are the things to which I currently devote my attention, lots of time, mental, emotional, real estate, are they likely to make me more aware of and in touch with God's presence, or are they more likely to distract me from God's presence or make me believe something other than God's truth? Now, this, again, includes things like reading the Scriptures in the morning or studying the Bible, coming to church on Sunday. All that's part of the mind category as well. But it also includes things like just reading, learning theology, studying the Scriptures, um, practicing gratitude, 
writing out a rule of digital life, which includes things like taking a routine break from screens or setting a daily limit on your device use, that sort of thing. So there's obvious overlap with the previous abide category. My current rule personally includes those elements that were in my abide category, but I also make space to do spiritual reading. Um, that for me is important that it has nothing to do with the work that I do here at Van City. It's just for my own mental formation. So early morning after my time in the scriptures and prayer, I read spiritual formation writers and Christian thinkers, theology, that sort of thing. My rule also includes keeping my smartphone as a dumb phone. About five years ago, uh, I removed every app from my phone that has a feed, and uh, there's no web browsers on my phone, there's no social media, no news, no YouTube, no work email, and I locked myself out of the app store, and only Abby knows the password when it has to be updated or it stops working, and then I just lock it right back over again. Um, art is really important to me, so I read tons of fiction and watch films, and I process those things with other friends and disciples of Jesus. Every week, I spend Sunday here with you guys in worship and prayer, studying, listening to God's Spirit, reminding myself that I'm not alone. I'm doing this with other people. I'm part of a movement that exists all over the world. If you're just beginning, our recommended baseline practice is disengage from devices for a set time on a daily or weekly basis to set a specific time limits on device use for yourself, and then to commit to a specific set routine of regularly taking in truth through reading or listening to the Bible Project podcast or listening to sermons or studying the scriptures, whatever it might be for you. Start small and build from there. That's the mind category. Next is the body. Um, when I first made my own rule of life, uh, this was a couple of years ago now. I found it really fascinating the more I read through literature, all the way back from the 5th century up until books published within the last few years. Every single source that I consulted uh, on the idea of a rule of life all mentioned physical fitness, which, again, shouldn't be surprising. It makes a lot of sense. Remember, in the story of the Bible, you are not a soul in a body. You are a soul and you are a body. The Bible goes as far as to describe your physical body as a temple for the Holy Spirit. Thus, how you care for your body matters in your spiritual formation and to God. To say nothing of the preponderance of scientific data that connects your physical fitness with your mental health, um, regular exercise has been shown to reduce anxiety and stress, encourage better sleep, better focus, even as a means of effectively treating things like PTSD and, hey, great news for me, ADD. And I am up here saying this as someone who is by no means into fitness culture. I hate hikes, I hate Nike, I hate REI, I hate Instagram, I hate before and after shots. So this is not what this is about. I just want to try and learn what it means to take care of my body and my mind and my spirit because it matters to God. I want to be healthy for my kids and for my calling and for my emotional and spiritual health. And all of those things are connected. So this category includes everything from, you know, getting good sleep or exercising or a healthy diet, a doctor's visit, dentist's visit. When I made my first rule of life, I actually started to think through what I eat and why. I set up specific parameters for myself around meal planning and healthy food and getting away from sugar and junk food and all that kind of thing. I got, I've got lots of diabetes and heart disease, all that stuff in my family, so I'm trying to be thoughtful and proactive. Um, I get up at 5.30 and exercise six mornings a week before my quiet time, and I try to get about seven hours of sleep most nights. I hate sleep. If I didn't have to do it, I wouldn't, but apparently it's important. Um, 
Uh, because of the rule of life, I actually established my primary care physician. That was fun. Made me feel like a grown-up. And I go to the dentist every six months. Aaron, is that what it's supposed to be? Every six months? Yep, I go to the dentist every six months. Um, our recommended baseline practice for beginners is to commit to some kind of healthy, consistent sleep schedule, implement some form of regular exercise, and begin to think through what it means for you to eat well. Now, again, this has nothing to do with body image goals. It has everything to do with honoring God and connecting to God through caring for the body He has given you as a temple of the Holy Spirit, being a faithful steward of your physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health. Remember, when you write your rule, and this applies to all the categories, the idea is that you set realistic goals, but that you set specific goals, meaning don't write something vague like, be healthy. Write something that you can actually do, like I will exercise twice a week or I'll take a short walk in the afternoons or whatever it is that you're going to do. Start small, be realistic, but be specific. That's the body category. The next category is relationships. Now, I like to frame this like this. Think of the relationships in your life as kind of like concentric circles. There are acquaintances and there are friends, and then in the middle you have your kind of closest, most personal relationships, or what we would describe in New Testament language as your community. Acquaintances, the outer circles, are just kind of people that you see and spend time with as life dictates. Uh, with friends, there might be a kind of spontaneity to your relationship or a unique and fluctuating reasons that you might may or may not spend more or less time together from one season to another. But with your most intimate friendships and with the, what we would call community, which includes the, your spouse or your children if you have them, those things take priority that supersedes the other circles. So you invest time and disciplined effort into keeping those connections particularly healthy. What many of you already know well enough is that the more crowded life gets, the more responsibilities one has, the more your season of life moves you in a given direction, the more difficult it can become to nurture and care for your relationships. It can be easy to maintain closeness with someone who's really important to you when life kind of puts them organically in your vicinity all the time. But as soon as that changes... You have to work at it to keep those relationships alive and healthy. This category will be wildly different from personality to personality. Some of you, when it comes to relationships, are, I would argue, spread a mile wide and an inch deep, meaning you spend tons of time with dozens of people week to week, dinner with this person, play date with this person, I hang out with this other person, but there's no meaningful relationship at all because you can't possibly be truly connected to so many people at one time. Others of us, on the other hand, you know, you shy away from real relationships and you have very few, or in some cases, almost no people with whom your life and your discipleship is actually open and laid bare with accountability and encouragement and everything in between. So your rule of life might include things like a weekly phone call or a coffee with a close friend or a weekly meal with your community, being at church on Sunday, for married couples, a recurring date night, cultivating and planning healthy, regular sexual connection. For single people, maintaining accountability to steward your sexuality according to the teachings of Jesus. For families, it might be sitting down to dinner every night or Sabbathing together or taking annual vacations together, that kind of thing. For me and my personal rule, it's breakfast and dinner around the table with my family every single day. 
uh, a time of prayer and Bible reading with our kids every single night. And then when the kids go to bed, Abby and I make a point to sit and talk for a while about our day and how we're doing to catch up, make sure we actually spend time in meaningful conversation together. We always have family time on the weekend, whether that's going out to do something or having a movie night at home, just specific time that we're all together having fun. We take one big family vacation every year, and we take another couple of small uh, family weekend getaways to something like the coast or Seattle annually. And then Abby and I take another short and simple getaway, just the two of us every year as well. All of those things scheduled, recurring, so that they happen every single year. We have Like many of you, community, every single week, we have church on Sunday. I have a few close friends who live in Portland. They go to a different church. We're not organically in each other's lives by proximity or community the way we were years ago. So we meet once a week for breakfast. We've been doing that for years and years now. And every month, we watch a movie together. I've also been playing Dungeons and Dragons with another group of friends about twice a month for several years now. Wow, yeah, yeah. which originally was about learning how to play that game, and now it's as much about the friendships as it is about the game. In fact, it's very difficult to keep them on track. Our suggested baseline uh, for beginners is a weekly connection point with a close friend, and not just to shoot the breeze, but actually share the meaningful intimacy of life in your discipleship, a weekly meal with your community, join a Van City community, and come to church on Sunday. That is the relationships category. The next category is work and rest. Don't worry, we're getting there. Stick with me. When you have a sense of your identity and your calling, a sense of your vision and how that vision translates into a mission for this season of life, this stage of your apprenticeship, all of that translates into your vocation or your work. And that could be your nine to five type of thing or It could be like a passion project to which you dedicate time outside of your nine to five. If those two things are not one and the same, if your nine to five is not exactly your vocation or your vision, your dream, then a rule of life can actually uh, be a crucial means by which you organize your time in order to honor both your responsibility and your passion and your calling. Because, you know, you can't neglect bills and responsibilities and that whole thing. But you also, I would argue, shouldn't neglect the things that God has made you to do that might be unique to or supplementing what you do to pay the bills, your nine-to-five sort of thing. And the other side of all of that is learning to complement your work with rest. God has designed us for a spiritual rhythm of work and then rest. Both are good and both are very necessary. So your rule might include your work schedule, dedicated time to a personal project, a regular and healthy sleeping rhythm, a weekly day off or Sabbath, um, a nothing night once a week where the calendar is deliberately empty or more than once a week. For me, um, I work, as some of you have deduced by now, at this church. Um, and that means I go to an office with Cam and Patrick and Levi and every single week work throughout the week uh, to write teachings and help lead Van City Church. But I also do other things that are not a part of my job at Van City Church. I write novels, I make music. So I set aside dedicated time, planned and scheduled time every single week to write. Um, and I spend times each month in the studio making music with some friends. So a rule of life is an excellent way to take these nagging ideas that many of us have. Man, I really should get started on this. This is the thing I want to do. And to work on that thing 
thoughtfully incorporating it into the rhythm of your life in a strategic and specific, deliberate way. But you can't just cram more stuff into your life. You have to prioritize rest proportionate to work. So Abby and I work to have multiple nights a week reserved for nothing extra, just the two of us at home. And we're extremely discriminating when it comes to anything that's beyond family time on the weekend in particular. Our suggested baseline for beginners is to honor your work schedule and to create a dedicated rhythm for any additional work that's consistent with your mission and your vision. Then plan at least one nothing night a week. Set a limit on the amount of engagement that you have engagements that you have each week and don't exceed it, and then honor at least one full day of weekly rest. No work at all, just rest. Okay, we are almost done. The next category is money. This includes making a detailed budget, uh, giving to the church, practicing simplicity, establishing like a blessing fund, generosity, sponsoring a child, that sort of thing. For um, my own rule of life for my family, it's keeping an annual month-to-month budget. We tithe to Van City Church. We give um, every month to justice causes, like we sponsor a kid in Kenya, and we donate to some other charities that we believe in. We practice simplicity by only buying things for ourselves when it is a gift-giving occasion, or with the money and gift cards we inevitably acquire through gift-giving occasions. Um, we limit, you know, going out to eat once a week or less, and we redirect excess savings and generosity to, or we redirect excess into savings and the purpose of generosity so that we remind ourselves that just because we have it doesn't mean that we should spend it, and it certainly doesn't mean that just because we have it we should spend it on ourselves. The suggested baseline is to create a budget, start there, that's really important, give to the church and begin a unique recurring fund for generosity and justice, or just to do generous things in your own life, in your own social circles. And then the final category is gospel and hospitality. This includes things like inviting a friend to church or a regular night to host neighbors for dinner, spending time listening to your coworkers or serving the poor through volunteering, all that kind of thing. Honestly, this category is the most difficult for me personally because I work full-time at a church. I'm a professional Christian. Um, and even though I've been desperately trying to get Cam saved for these past six years, <laughs> there's a little more I can do at this point. So it's up to God now. Uh, given that my coworkers already love Jesus, most of my first two concentric circles of relationships already love Jesus, which is great. It's not a bad thing. This means that I'm not afforded a ton of really organic recurring opportunities to rub elbows with people who don't happen to already believe the same things that I believe, which means that I'm trying to set focused but realistic goals to be intentional and outgoing with people like our neighbors. I don't know what they believe. They might believe the same thing as me, but I don't know yet. And to with other parents that we're meeting at our kids' school. Um, and I use my creative projects in an effort to further the gospel of Jesus through art. Most of you guys in the room, I would venture a guess, probably do have coworkers or fellow students or friends whose faith is either a mystery to you 
Or maybe you already know they just don't follow Jesus. So maybe your opportunities are a bit more obvious. Some of you are already doing justice work. You're already caring for causes that are near and dear to the heart of God, that that provide amazing opportunities to both represent and share the gospel. Well done. Thank God for you. The rest of us have to be creative and intentional because no one comes to believe the complex and beautiful truth of Jesus just because their neighbor smiled and waved from time to time. Our suggested baseline is to invest time and energy into getting to know a neighbor or a coworker or whoever, not as a target for conversion, but as an opportunity for you to practice hospitality. Whew, okay, that's it. Those are the categories. Abiding, the mind, the body, relationships and sexuality, work and rest, money and gospel and hospitality. Each of those practices translates into practices, and each of those practices you organize by rhythms, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and or annually. Once again, I put my business in the street purely for the sake of examples. Feel free to steal or adapt or ignore them while you make your own rule of life. I made my li- uh, rule of life a few years ago, and then right when I felt like it had really hit its stride and it was really having the, a tremendously formational effect on me, the pandemic hit and changed everything. And then I reorganized my own rule of life, redeveloped it, the world changed again and again and again. And just when I feel like I'd sort of found a consistent through line through all of this weirdness, we had another kid and that changed everything again. So my rule isn't the archetype or the ideal, it's where I'm at, and it changes as life changes. You don't have to get up early and do your exercise if that's not what works best for you or makes the most sense for this season and stage of your life. You might just take a walk every afternoon for right now or something like that. You don't have to play D&D with the same group of people for years, but really, you should be so lucky. Um, <laughs> You don't have to do an hour of contemplative prayer every single morning. Maybe you'll start with something like, I'll read a chapter from one of the Gospels every day, and I will pray for five minutes. Any of you can do that. So your rule won't and shouldn't look just like another person's rule, because we all have unique circumstances and seasons of life and stages of apprenticeship, and we all have room to grow. So the idea is that you start small with lots of room to mature and further develop your rule, but the idea is that you commit to the rule that you make. Uh, I've had a rule for the last few years, and in that time, talking about it, implementing it, evolving it through life and chaos and the pandemic and a new kid, I've noticed that we tend to either hype the ideal or we immediately let ourselves off the hook with fatalism, meaning... We either paint a picture-perfect portrait of an amazing, saintly rule of life beginning miles from where we're really at, and then we inevitably disappoint ourselves when we don't do it, or we go so far in reminding ourselves that it's okay not to be perfect that we eventually let ourselves off the hook from having a rule of life at all. We say things like, oh, if you don't pray every day, don't beat yourself up. That's True, yeah, don't beat yourself up. But then we say, oh, if you can't be at church, don't worry about it. That's your season. Or, oh, if community is hard for you, just don't go anymore. I have been in community for years, and when it inevitably happens that someone admits that, oh, I didn't do the practice this week because I just didn't do it, someone jumps in to say, like, that's okay, and it drives me insane because what, why, why is that okay? In reality, the whole point is 
to craft the code by which you will live and then to live by it. And it will be hard. Following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. We need accountability, not ongoing permission to flake out. You will have to die to yourself, deny yourself over and over again to pull this off. And God's Spirit will empower you to do the heavy lifting, but it will take sacrifice and discipline to live by a code. But we can do that. Disciples of Jesus all over the world have been doing that for hundreds and hundreds of years. We have the Spirit of God in us, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and we have each other. So we can start small, we can set realistic goals, and we can grow together holding one another accountable, not giving each other permission to bail out. Over the next few weeks, as you meet with your communities, you'll head to vancity.church slash vision series and begin the process of creating your own rule of life. If you're not in a community yet or if you're listening to this in the future <laughs> via the podcast, feel free to join in with, you know, doing the same thing with a group of friends. Grab somebody and give it a shot. But the reason for this whole thing being preferable amongst community is probably obvious. We need each other to do this. Church and community have been for more than 2,000 years now, not moral duties or social obligations, but they are the way that we learn to follow Jesus well, the places where we are actually formed and changed over time, the way we mold our hearts and minds, how we learn and love and repent and forgive. Togetherness can nurture faithfulness. But it's much more than that. This is a sacred place. This is a sacred time. This is communion and worship and the scriptures and family, food and drink. It may seem unremarkable at times, but it is and has been to people all over the world for such a long time a sacred, beautiful, precious thing. And it is fundamental to realizing a rule of life. Accountability is here. Encouragement is here. We all need reminding of why any of this matters because we all forget from time to time. So we come to stand in the same room and raise our hands to the God of the universe and remember, right, yes, over and against every bad or distracting thing in my life, over and against every lie coming at me from every angle from the world around me, this is the truth. This is what I believe. God is here. He is wonderful. I am not alone. I am doing this with other brothers and sisters. We open the scriptures to remember the truth over and against every lie or distortion, angling for our minds, vying for our attention throughout every minute of every day. We eat together and remember that we're not alone and we're not perfect. We're all at some point shambling and hobbling along this narrow way and we need the arms of others to hold us up sometimes. And sometimes we need to be the ones who hold someone else up. And we call each other up to the way again and again, and we take communion to remember the body of Jesus broken for us, the blood of Jesus spilled for us, to be struck by the beauty and the scandal of it again and again as we look around a room of people remembering the very same thing. And when we treat this space as optional or secondary, we neglect all of that, we take it for granted, or worse. To follow Jesus, we need the church. And this community can act as a support and encouragement, accountability, as you work to realize your rule of life. In his beautiful little book, Domestic Monastery, Ronald Rollheiser refers to what we call community as your cell. 
He writes this. Here's a really long quote. You won't see it up there, but here you go. Enjoy me reading it to you. He writes, Go to your cell, and your cell will teach you everything you need to know. Stay inside your vocation, inside your commitments, inside your legitimate conscriptive duties, inside your church, inside your family, and they will teach you what love means. Be faithful to your commitments, and what you are ultimately looking for will be found there. Every time you leave your cell, you come back less a person. This is telling us that every time we step outside our commitments, every time we are unfaithful, every time we walk away from what we should legitimately be doing, we become less a person for that betrayal. There's a rich spirituality in these principles. Stay inside your commitments. Be faithful. Your place of work is a seminary. Your work is a sanctuary. Stay inside them. Don't betray them. Learn what they are teaching you without constantly looking for life elsewhere and without constantly believing God is elsewhere. To end, let me pose a stark but fair question. Why live this way? Why church? Why community? And why a rule of life? Why live by a code? The short answer is Jesus. Because Jesus lived by a code, and because He told us to be like Him. Because Jesus is good, and we love Him, and we trust Him, and isn't that, that why any of us are here, really? Whether you've been following, for Jesus, following Jesus for decades or for a few months now, you've seen something, maybe heard His voice or found in Him something undeniable and true, some strong current pulling you in. You don't make a rule of life. You don't live by a code to be more moral or more successful or more organized. You do it because of your master, Jesus. He lived this way, and He said we should too, so we can trust that it's good and that it's best. And we need each other to remember that. Let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to encourage, convict, and propel us forward as we work to learn to be like Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.